exist to see God glorified and disciples multiplied through the power of the gospel. Few things more beautiful than the sound of the saints gathered. If you have your Bibles, please open them to John chapter 5. John chapter 5. While you're turning, I'll tell you we're going to be starting in verse 16. And let me remind you that last week we saw Jesus return to his home country and then go down again to Jerusalem for another feast. But instead of going straight to the temple, he stops at the pool of Bethesda. This pool was said to have magical healing properties. So there was a large crowd of disabled men and women around the pool waiting for the chance to be healed. So Jesus chose to go to this place and he chose to go there on the Sabbath. And he passes by countless people on his way to one man who he does heal, who had been disabled for 38 years. This man didn't know who Jesus was, certainly didn't have any faith in him, but Jesus heals him. But the tragedy of that story is that this man, freshly healed, does not start following Jesus, but quickly reports him to the Pharisees because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath. And as I've been studying this story and preparing this sermon, all I could think of was why. Why did Jesus go to this place? Why didn't he heal anyone else? Why did Jesus go to this man who was so undeserving? Surely there had to be someone better in that crowd of people who deserved to be healed rather than this man. Also, why did he heal on the Sabbath? He couldn't have waited a day. And then as we move on in the story, it becomes clear. The primary reason Jesus came was to die as a substitute for sinners. And so far in the first four chapters, the Pharisees have been merely skeptical of Jesus. But now as they hear about Jesus healing on the Sabbath, they become murderous. It seems like Jesus' ministry is going to come to a quick end. But in reality, everything is going exactly according to plan. So that's where we are. That's what we'll be studying this morning. So let's pray and then we'll dive into John chapter 5. Dear Lord, this disabled man experienced the power of God, but remained spiritually blind. And I beg you that the same will not be true for us. The Pharisees studied the scriptures because they thought they found life in them. But when Jesus came... They refuse to come to him. Help us to not be so stubborn. Give sight to our eyes and sound to our ears. We open your word. May the sermon that is heard be far better than the one that is preached. Pray these things in your son's name. Amen. C.S. Lewis once wrote, Christianity, if false, is of no importance, and if true, of infinite importance. The only thing it cannot be is moderately important. We're living in an age where in America, Jesus has a 93% approval rating and 97% of Americans say that they have been positively influenced by Jesus while simultaneously living in the era where church attendance is at an all-time low since they've started tracking the figure. Church attendance, of course, does not make someone a Christian and having a positive influence by Jesus does not make someone a Christian. But I think it's important to realize that Our world and our country is beginning to treat Jesus more and more like he's moderately important. Like, hey, I like that guy. He has a lot of wisdom. He's a great moral teacher. But let's not worry too much about 
what he said. Let's not get too crazy about this whole Jesus thing. And I think one of the reasons for this is that it's a lot easier to like someone when they're not around to say things which make you angry. And I can guarantee that if Jesus were around today, he would not be nearly as popular. Do you ever notice that sometimes Jesus in the Gospels goes looking for a fight? There's times where he will go out of his way to intentionally offend people and turn them off. And that's amazing to me because he does it sinlessly. Like when Jesus is teaching, there's at one point, he has thousands of followers. He's just fed them the bread and the loaves and they're ready to follow them. And then in the middle of this revival, it seems like the movement is off the ground and he's going to start this worldwide revolution. He's bringing the kingdom back. And what sermon does Jesus go to next? Eat my flesh. Drink my blood. And the people don't understand that he's speaking symbolically. And he does not clarify. He does not chase after them. He does not try to print a retraction. There's just times he lets them go offended. And look, if we got rid of all the talk of sin and hell in our church and we took the Bible way less seriously, then I think it would have a message that would be attractive to the majority of people in our community and in our country. But we don't gather here to draw crowds or to make people feel good. We're here to gather and to talk about who Jesus is and what he came to do. And that message is incredibly countercultural today. Like it still amazes me as your pastor that I'll come in here and preach about hell and sin and just kind of hit you over the head with the Bible for 30 minutes and then you come back next week. I'm just, I, what? What is this group? No one signs up for that. When Jesus came here, he was incredibly popular when it came to healing and miracles. Like last week when he told the disabled man to go and sin no more, what happened? Instead of following Jesus, he went and reported him to the Pharisees. Jesus' message gets even more unpopular when he starts making himself out to be equal with God. And even today, people want Jesus as a great philosopher, as a healer, maybe even a prophet. But they don't want him as God. Because if Jesus is who he says he is, then the way we live our lives has to radically change. So let me ask you, does the fact that Jesus is God change the way you live your life? Do you honor him as infinitely important or have you gotten so busy with the regular business of life that he has become moderately important? Well, get ready for John 5 because in our passage, Jesus gives us a full unfiltered look into who he is and why what we believe about him matters. My prayer this morning is that you would marvel at who Jesus is so that you could see Jesus as infinitely important. Because in John chapter 5 verses 16 through 24, we're going to see six ways Jesus is one with the Father. Six ways Jesus is one with the Father. First, we're going to see that he is one with the Father in his nature in verses 16 through 18. He's one with the Father in his works in verses 19 through 20. In his power in verse 21. In his judgment in verse 22. In his honor in verse 23. And finally, in his truth in verse 24. I know that's a lot of ways that Jesus is one with the Father. I've broken the typical Baptist rule that you're supposed to have three points and I never alliterate. So there's that too. But I know that's a lot, but so let's dive in with the first way Jesus is one with the Father in his nature. Look with me to verse 
16, chapter 5. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. We'll stop right there. In this verse, the controversy sets in. And if you read the other Gospels, this scene is all too familiar. Jesus is healed on the Sabbath. And because the Pharisees care more about their man-made rules than the fact that God is working in their midst and has produced a miracle in this man, they were, produ- they were persecuting Jesus. And this is where you would expect Jesus to call the Pharisees on their dumb rules, on their hypocrisy. In the other Gospels, when Jesus is arguing with the Pharisees about the Sabbath, usually he says something like this. If you have an ox that falls into the ditch on the Sabbath, don't you go and help that ox out? If you have work to do in the temple and it's the Sabbath day, don't you do the work anyway? Usually Jesus will call the Pharisees out on their hypocrisy, but he does not do that here. Look what he does do in verse 17. But Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I am working. Let's keep going in verse 18. This is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. In Genesis, Moses wrote that God created the universe in six days. And on the seventh day, you probably know, he rested. Now, when God rested, that does not mean that God stopped working. It merely means that he stopped from his creative work. You see, God is not just the creator of life. He is the sustainer of life. And if he were to stop all of his activity, then all life outside of himself would end, including you and I. That's why the Bible says that in God, we live and we move and we exist. Because God is always working. The early church father, John Christostom, the prince of preachers of his day, said on this passage, If anyone says, how does the father work who ceased on his seventh day from all his work? Let him learn the manner in which he works. What is it? He cares for, he holds together all that has been made. When you beheld the sun rising, the moon running in her path, the lakes, the fountains, the rivers, the rains, the course of nature in seeds and in our own bodies and all the rest, Then we learn the ceaseless working of the Father. But if God is always working, this is the question. Does that mean that he's a Sabbath breaker? That's his rule, that's his commandment, but he's working. The rabbi of Jesus' day argued that because it was essential for God to uphold the universe, it was not a sin for God to work on the Sabbath. Sounds like pretty good logic to me. So Jesus says something that's common knowledge in that day, but he adds a dramatic flair to it, a twist. He calls God his father. He says, my father. The Jews of the day would sometimes pray to God as our father, but they would never pray to him personally by saying, my father. And then he goes on to say, my father is working until now. And he adds the controversy, and I am working. What is Jesus saying? Let me paraphrase. I think that Jesus is saying, just as God does not break the Sabbath by causing the sun to rise, so I do not break the Sabbath by healing this man because I am of the same nature as God. He doesn't say the words, I am God, but the Pharisees understand immediately what he's getting at. And that's why they wanted to kill him. Not just for Sabbath breaking, which was punishable by death, but for claiming to be one with God in his divine nature, which was blasphemy, also punishable by death. 
But Jesus does not stop here when he claims to be one with the Father in his nature. He picks a fight. He pushes the controversy. He offends their sensibilities. He goes on to say that he is also one with the Father in his workings or in his works. Look with me to verses 19 through 20. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, or amen, amen, I say to you, the Son can do nothing on his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And stop right there. Back in Jesus' day, a man would typically go into the business of his father because there were no trade schools or community colleges or even regular colleges. You had to be trained by a professional in your field, and that usually meant you followed your father's footsteps. You'd watch him work, and out of love, your father would teach you and train you, as a father does a son, what he does. So here Jesus is hinting again at his true identity. Only someone who has the ability to do what God can do can be equal with God. And here Jesus is not some rival with God. He's not independent from God. But Jesus is saying that the works he does and the works that the Father does are one in the same. Now to be clear, there are real differences between the person of the Son and the person of the Father. For instance, the Father did not die on the cross. Jesus came and died on the cross. The Father, however, was active and participated in the cross, but not in Jesus' suffering. In fact, Isaiah 53 says that it pleased the Lord to crush him. The cross was not merely some cruel injustice by the religious rulers of the day and the Romans. The cross was the divine work of God Almighty, where the Father poured out his wrath and crushed the Son, as Jesus was dying as a substitute for sinners. Everything Jesus does is dependent upon the Father and in agreement with the Father. The Father, Son, and Spirit act with one will and one purpose because they are one God, one being, one essence. And I know I've said this before, but I'll say it again. The way we think about the Trinity is terrible. It is messed up. It's dysfunctional. And how do I know? Because it's the way that I tend to think about the Trinity. We usually think of God the Father. He's up there. And yeah, he's forgiven us, but he's still angry. and He could smite us at any moment. Jesus, he's your guy. He is the loving one who does the work of convincing the Father to tolerate you. And the Spirit is the smoke machine that comes into our worship when this music is really good on Sunday morning. Now, none of that is true, but that's typically what we think when we refer to the Trinity, this dysfunction. So, so in our minds, that's, that's our ideas. We have this dysfunction, and God is angry with us, and Jesus is happy with us. But in this passage, the Son is one with the Father in His works because they have one will and one purpose. They are not warring against one another. There is no contradiction. There is no tension. The son did not need to convince the father of anything. It was an inside job from the start because the son is one with the father and his works. You want to know what God the father is like. There are three ways to know what God is like. First, God reveals himself through creation. As you go outside, you look at the beauty of what God has made and the creation in a general way reveals something to us about our creator. Secondly, 
God reveals himself specifically through the Bible. You get a general feel about God through nature, but you get a much more accurate and trustworthy account of what he's like in his word. But finally, and most fully, God reveals himself through the person of Jesus. Hebrews 1 says the sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by the power of his word. Colossians 1, the sun is the image of the invisible God. So in other words, the son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, that the son does likewise. You, know what, you want to know what the father is like? Look at the works of Jesus. Is that every time that we feel resentment, that feel God's going to smite, look at the evidence of what God has done through Jesus and the love poured out on the cross of Jesus. That's the love of the Father right there, amen? That's his affection and feeling towards those who are his. So why does God reveal himself through the Son? We'll look at the end of verse 20. I stopped reading halfway through. There's a second sentence there. It says, And greater works than these he will show him, so that you may marvel. Jesus is going to show them greater works than these, so that they may marvel. Who is Jesus talking to in this dialogue? not talking to his disciples or his followers. He's speaking to his accusers, to the Pharisees, the very people who wish to put him to death. And he's saying, I'm going to show you these works so that you may marvel, so that you may believe and that you can see the works of God displayed in me and believe in me. So the son is one with the father in his nature and his works. And you see the the, the beauty of this gospel invitation right here. This Romans talks about someone might be willing to die for a good person, someone who's especially good, someone might even dare to die. But who lays down their life for their enemies? Jesus is the one who laid down his life for his enemies because before we were in Christ, we were his enemies. No matter how radical your sinful disposition was to Jesus, you were his enemy. Despite, you were in this group of the Pharisees. And Jesus' invitation to you, saying, I'm going to show you these things so that you may marvel, so that you may believe. So the, father is, or the Son is one with the Father in his nature and his works, but he's also one with him in power. Look with me to verse 21. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. New Testament scholar D.A. Carson writes that the rabbis of Jesus' day argued that God alone held three keys. The key of the weather, the key of the womb, and the key of the resurrection of the dead. Only the prophet Elijah was seen as an exception. But even when Elijah worked miracles... He did it only by asking God through prayer. But Jesus' power is totally different from Elijah's. If you look back in verse 21, who can the Son give life to? To whom He will. His power is in His hand, and He chooses, and whenever He chooses to use it, it goes, and He gives it out. He is the one who the wind and the waves obey, and therefore He has the key of the weather. He is the one who was conceived of the virgin Mary, and therefore he is the key of the womb. 
And not only will Jesus resurrect three different people before this gospel is done, he himself will rise triumphantly from the grave, and therefore he is the key of the resurrection of the dead. Amen? Amen. Jesus has the keys which only God is supposed to hold. And so we must say that Jesus is one with the Father in power. Amen? Amen? But Jesus is also one with the Father in judgment. Look with me to verse 22. For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son. Verse 22, Jesus has been given all judgment. Since Genesis, God alone has been recognized as the judge of the whole earth. But here Jesus is saying that the Father has appointed the Son to the divine role of judge. That's why in the book of Acts, Paul told us that God commands all people everywhere to repent. Because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Jesus is the giver of life, but he is also the judge of the living and the dead. There's many people who have no desire to come to Jesus as their Savior because they have no idea that otherwise they will have to face him as their judge. There's a picture in our culture of a wimpy, needy Jesus, and he's nothing like the Jesus of the Bible. Instead of commanding all people everywhere to repent, the Jesus of our culture is weak and whiny, and he's just begging you to give him a chance. He's waiting for you. He's yearning for you. But that is not the Jesus of the Bible. Does he desire all men to be saved? Yes, he does. Will Jesus receive all who come to him? Absolutely. But for those who will not come to him as their savior, they will eventually bow the knee when he is their judge. And that's a sobering fact. It's appointed once for a man to die and then comes the judgment. One day you will come face to face to Jesus as your judge, ready or not. One day everyone that you know will come face to face with Jesus as their divinely appointed judge. Ready or not? Because Jesus is the one with the, was one with the Father in judgment. But Jesus is also one with the Father in honor. Look with me to verse 23. That all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. My father spent 10 years of his life as an agnostic... Agnostic is someone who doesn't really know whether or not there is a God. And my father lived as if there wasn't one for the better part of 10 years. But he started having kids. And as my brothers and I got older, he thought to himself, my kids need to be in church. So he tried church out for a bit. And he went to the sweet Presbyterian church in town. And he was not sure about joining. So when he met with the pastor, he told him, look, I want to be a Christian. But I have really good friends. And they're Muslim. And they're Buddhist. And they're good people, but Jesus says they're not going to heaven because he's the only way. And I just don't know how to deal with that. The Presbyterian minister said to my dad, well, those people are Christians. They just don't know it. And my dad joined that church. (laughs) And it took a couple years, but eventually my dad switched over to First Baptist Lafayette. He heard the true gospel and he was baptized in that church. Unfortunately, this verse does not have a loophole for people who are secretly or unknowingly Christians. If you don't honor the Son, 
Not only are you not honoring the Father, but you also don't believe in the same God as the God of the Bible. Most people I've talked to around here believe in a kind of God, but it doesn't matter if you believe in a God if you don't honor the Son. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by Him. If someone believes in God, but that God is not the triune God of the Bible, they do not know the true God. They're either worshiping a God of their imagination or a God of a false religion. And I understand, this is where people... If you're going to get mad in the sermon, this is the point when you get mad. Because it's okay to say that Jesus is God until you start saying he is the only God. Most people will start saying this is a really arrogant and narrow-minded thing to think. Listen, I am not the one arguing that Jesus is God. Jesus is. The question is not, is this church or is this pastor narrow-minded? The question is, what are you going to do with the words of Jesus? C.S. Lewis once wrote, I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon. Or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that option open to us. He did not intend to. Before we move on, I want to say one more thing about honoring Jesus. Most of us in this room would probably amen that and agree with that. Yes, Jesus is Lord. He is the only way. He is God. We've already seen that Jesus is one with the Father in his nature, in his work, in his power, in his judgment. So let me ask you, do you honor Jesus appropriately? Do you worship him the way that he commands you to? Let's start with something as simple as going to church. The book of Hebrews tells us not to neglect meeting together, as is the habit of some, but to encourage one another. Anybody ever skip church because you wanted to do something else? I'm guilty. And I also realize I'm speaking to the choir because you are, of course, in church right now. So let me ask you this question. How many times have you come to church but you did not encourage anyone? Because the command in Hebrews is not just to attend, it is to encourage and to love and to serve. It's easy to attend. It's hard to encourage and love and to serve. And I'll be the first to admit that I have been many times to a church service and not encouraged a brother or a sister. We come to church primarily to honor God and secondarily not for ourselves, but to love and serve and to encourage one another. But how often are we selfish and we're only concerned with our preferences and I like the music this way and I wish Taylor did it this way and I wish the church was like this and I wish this message spoke more to me. And and our thoughts are entirely about ourselves and not about glorifying God or serving one another. Even for those of us who acknowledge that Jesus is truly God, we all fail to honor him as we should. But there is good news. 
We've looked at many hard and convicting truths, and this probably feels like one of those sermons where I beat you over the head for 30 minutes and then let you go. But there is one more way that the Son is one with the Father. In truth, look with me to verse 24. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. Though you and I have failed to honor Jesus the way he deserves to be honored, God the Father so loved the world that he sent Jesus to die for sinners like you and I. Jesus was absolutely sinless in this life. That's why it's so important he did not break the Sabbath because if he had even one sin on him, he would be an unworthy sacrifice before God the Father. But he didn't sin. He perfectly obeyed God the Father. And he went to the cross as the perfect spotless Lamb of God who would take away the sin of the world. And it was on that cross when Jesus died, the wrath of the Father was satisfied. And now that he has defeated the grave and ascended to heaven, all we must do is listen to the good news of Jesus and believe in the one who has sent him. Turn from trusting in your own works. Turn from trusting in yourself. Turn from any sin that keeps you from the Lord. And trust alone in the cross of Jesus. That is the call today. This is a beautifully deep passage. And I've spent a few nights with deep headaches trying to understand the relationship between the Father, Son, and Spirit. Let me tell you. But this is not just a passage for us to think about. The command is clear. Turn and trust. Believe in the word of the Son and trust in the one who has sent him. Who can have this eternal life? Look back at verse 24. Who is he offering this? Whoever believes. When do we get this eternal life? It does not say in verse 24, you get this eternal life when you die. Jesus says that whoever believes already has eternal life. If you are in Christ, you have already passed from death and to life. Christ has already given you life. And if you believed in Christ's truth, you are already saved from his judgment and need no longer fear. And the judgment, though menacing and far off, that will no longer be the day of your destruction. It is the day where God turns all things right and rights all wrongs. My prayer this morning is that you would marvel so that you could see Jesus as infinitely important. Because in John 5, verses 16 through 24, we saw six ways Jesus is one with the Father. He's one with the Father in his nature, his works, his power, his judgment, his honor, and his truth. So let me ask you again. Have you been living as if Christianity was infinitely valuable, or have you been treating Jesus like he's moderately important? Jesus claimed to be one with the Father, and that means either he's a lunatic, a liar, or Lord of all. I know the right answer, and I know most of you know the right answer in here. Now the question is this, will you honor him as Lord of all? I've got one simple pastoral charge for you. Honor him as Lord. Honor him as Lord. For some, that means to go to verse 24 and to believe in the Son, to listen to the word of this gospel that the Father has sent His Son into the world on this mission to die for sinners like you and I. For others, 
of us, it means to trust in Jesus and his power to get life. When we have family and friends who are in Christ and they pass away, what does John say? He says, though they died, it would be as if they never did. As there's not a moment of interruption from the time a saint closes their eyes to when they are in glory. That's the life that the Son gives. You trust and honor Jesus and his plan. The fact that he came to Jerusalem, to this place, to this man, to these Pharisees. And here's the thing. If God is sustaining and upholding the entire universe right now, if he were to stop, we would all stop existing. God has even guided you to this pew where you sit this morning to hear this message because the plan of God is for you to hear the word right now so that you may honor the Son. His plan is infinitely complicated and we may only know a couple of ways that God has been guiding us in this life. On the other side of eternity, there'll be a lot of light shed to that. But trust in His plan. Honor His sovereign plan. Honor His justice. And when we hold our fists up to God and we say, why did this happen? That's an understandable feeling. The Psalms are full of it. We read that earlier in Psalm 42 of why is my soul downcast? But at the end of the day, we say the Lord is just and he will do right. So we honor his justice, his plan. We honor his authority. Is that sometimes people will also criticize and take the Bible and, and say, I know more than you, God. Rather than recognizing God's rightful rule and authority that he designed the human body, that he designed you in your life and he knows how it operates. That's one way that we honor his rule and his authority. We honor his majesty. We trust in his plan. And for all those who today repent and trust in Jesus, eternal life is yours today. Not when you die, you get it today. And it does look forward to this majestic, beautiful scene where we're gathered around the throne to worship God Almighty. Look, a a version of heaven where Jesus is not the center of it is not a heaven I want to be in. Heaven is infinitely beautiful and interesting and majestic because He is there. Like I love my, my Muslim friends and neighbors. I don't want to go to Muslim heaven because Jesus is not the center of there. Like, I, I love my, my, my Mormon friends and neighbors, right? but I don't want to go to Mormon heaven because Jesus is not the center there. Right? And, and no matter what worldview it is, no matter... Who it is, whatever worldview does not honor Jesus as the Son, does not present an afterlife that is worth going to. Because he's at the center of it. And that's why we honor him. I want to close with a passage from uh, C.S. Lewis, because we already started with him. We quoted him a couple times, so might as well end with him. This is at the very end of the Chronicles of Narnia. I think it's the last battle. And as Edmund... And Lucy are speaking with Aslan. This is the way that he ends his series. It says, As Aslan spoke, he no longer looked to them like a lion. But the things that began to happen after that were so great and beautiful that I cannot write them. And for us, this is the end of all the stories. And we can most uh, truly say that all live happily ever after. But for them, it was only the beginning of the real story. All their life in this world and all their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover and the title page. Now at last they were beginning chapter one of the great story, which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever and ever, and in which every chapter is better 
than before. Because when we go there, we'll crown him with many crowns. We'll honor him as Lord of life, Lord of love. We'll honor him for Christ's death and resurrection. And we'll praise him and wipe away every tear. And that's the life that Christ gives. Hi, Taylor Callen, pastor of Oregon Baptist Church. Thank you so much for listening to this sermon. I pray that you are more encouraged and love Jesus and the gospel more after hearing the sermon than when you first sat down to listen to it. Know that that our heart at this church is that this sermon would be an encouragement to you and would be a useful resource, but would in no way replace the pastor that God has called to shepherd you or the church that you're called to be a member of. With that being said, If you want more information about our church or want to hear more sermons, go to horicanbaptist.com.